We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Uh, good evening again, those of you that are joining us online. Thank you for doing that. We're in Acts chapter 8 tonight. Once again, Acts chapter 8, we took a large section, verses 1 through 25, and we really dealt with uh, most of 1 through 13 last time, and also uh, a little bit uh, beyond that, but I wanted to focus tonight on 9 through uh, 13 a little bit, and then also 18 through 24. So, uh, starting in verse 9, there was a certain man named Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city. Okay, this is in a city in Samaria. You remember where Philip went to preach the gospel of Christ and the kingdom of God. And it says that Simon previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. And then drop down to verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given... He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So this is Peter and John were sent down and then they dealt with this issue with uh, the sorcerer, and then they returned. But I wanted to speak about the uh, sorcerer here tonight, not so much about what he was doing beforehand, uh, although we'll touch on that. He, his sorceries were like the miracles that Philip was doing. The activities that he did formerly captivated his audience. He promoted himself as someone who was a great one, very powerful, and the people accepted him as such. They bought into his uh, propaganda, so to speak. Uh, if he did have any legit, you know, not legitimate power, but real power, we'll say, if he had any real power, it was from which realm? It was from the demonic realm. It was, it was from below, not from above, not from God. Um, but as is often the case, people can easily be deceived 
by the source of the power because they think, oh, these are remarkable events. They must be, you know, from God. But no, indeed, that's not the case. So he makes a profession of Christian faith, and it tells us a little bit about that in verse number 12. Everybody else was believing Philip as he preached the kingdom and Christ, and men and women were baptized, and there was such a turning to the Lord, such an obvious power had come over the people, such a change had transformed them. Simon saw something happening there, and he also believed And when he was baptized, continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. First problem, okay? Should be amazed at the work of Christ. Should be amazed at the forgiveness of sins, amazed at the miracle of the resurrection, amazed at the death of Christ on the cross, amazed at the grace of God. When your focus is drawn away as often it is in more charismatic circles or in, you know, the health and wealth and healing kinds of situations. It's all about that stuff. It's not about Christ. And the work of the Spirit of God is never to draw attention away from Christ onto other peripheral issues. It's always to draw attention to Christ. So his, his perspective, his focus is off to begin with. And I have to wonder, without going on any farther in the text, if he was professing faith for the What's the word I'm looking for for the, you know, the uh, the notoriety of it, for the fame of it, for the, you know, for the perhaps power that he saw that maybe he could have in it, or the popularity of it, or something, but not in truth, because he was, you know, turning away from his sorceress sin, sorcer sorcerer's sin, <laughs> whatever you might call it. So. Um, he made the profession of faith, is baptized in apparent identification with the message that Philip was, uh, was preaching. Um, but he, had a, he was greatly influenced by these miracles and these signs. Perhaps he could see, for one thing, that these miracles were uh, like real and good things as opposed to his own. Maybe he saw a little bit of there's a darkness around himself, around me, he would say, as he looked at this and he saw this other stuff going on and said, well, that's real. That's not, you know, the stuff that I'm doing. Captivated by that. And uh, the gospel message of Christ did not have that focus that it should have. Now, his sin comes to the forefront in verse uh, 18 when he saw that the apostles came and they laid hands on the people. Now, remember last time we said that when they did this and the Spirit of God Uh, came upon these folks that this was the kind of seal of approval from Jerusalem to Samaria. It said, okay, you know, they didn't receive the Spirit immediately initially because I think God was saying we want the apostles to be there to give their stamp of approval and say this is all connected together. This is one big work of God. It's not, it's delay in the reception of the Spirit is not normally how it works, certainly not today, but... um, at least in the book of Acts, it worked this way on this occasion. And so the, the apostles came, they laid hands on them, and they received this, the Spirit of God. So this is a, a kind of an or, not, not an ordination per se, but a, a, an origination, a beginning point of the ministry of the Spirit in the salvation of these Samaritans. And so Simon saw that, 
And he kind of thought of it as a, in a sacramental way. You know, like if I just, if I have that power, I can lay my hands on people and somehow they'll get, you know, zapped by the Spirit of God. And this power will come upon them and they'll be able to maybe do miracles like Peter and John did or be able to speak in tongues or something. And so he said, I'd like to have that power as well. Effectively, what he was doing is saying, I'd like to buy the office of apostle. You know what I mean? Like, I'd like that. Because that's only the apostles really, a small band of people could do that uh, stuff because they were commissioned by Christ personally to do it and to begin to expand the work of the church. So he offered money, excuse me, money for this and said, I want this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, that was, uh, you know, really bad evidence against him, as we'll see, because Peter says your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Um, You know, the gospel cannot be purchased. The work of the Spirit of God cannot be bought. Uh, One of the reasons why we support missionaries, for example, is we give them money because we're believers. We know the value of of the gospel. We support them to go to a place so they can freely offer the gospel, at least initially, until those people understand, wow, I've gotten a huge spiritual benefit. It's nothing if I put a few bucks in the offering plate, you know, to, to support the work myself. Paul did that. You know, he, he had a right as an apostle to receive remuneration. He said that those that make their living or those that preach the gospel should make their living from the gospel. They should be supported in the work that they're doing. And so Paul, uh, you know, said that, taught that to the people. But he said, I didn't make use of this because I wanted to offer the gospel free of charge. In other words, I wanted my ministry to be an illustration of the ministry that God was offering us in the gospel. And the same thing with the Holy Spirit as a part of that gospel message. He's a gift from God. You can't buy a gift. You never go to Christmas morning with a pocket full of cash to give to your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister when they give you a gift. You don't buy a gift. You don't buy a gift. You can't buy a gift. And you can't buy the Holy Spirit nor the power to give him. It's, it's funny because uh, the Spirit of God, he's the one who distributes gifts himself, spiritual gifts. And he di- does it as he wills to each person depending on their unique situation, their abilities, their you know, past and all of that and with things that he wants them to do or not their past. You know, he wants to change them and transform them into an instrument that he can use for himself. And uh, thinking of my own, my own ministry when I say that, you've known my testimony about that and uh, how the Spirit of God has worked uh, in that way. But Simon wanted to pay money for the gift. Well, that's totally backwards. Um, money is a wage for a, a thing, you know, that's not for gifts. And so Peter says these quite harsh words to him um, that, that are very troubling to us, you know, you got you want to control the the giving of the Spirit of God, and uh, your money perish with you. Notice what Peter says. Besides, your money perish with you. I mean, that's not a good sign, right there, is it? Your money perish with you. Where do you think it's going to perish to? Heaven. Yeah. 
I came to this section with the question, as I have in years past, as I've read this, and you probably have as well, was Simon the sorcerer truly saved or not? He made a profession of faith and he was baptized, but he bore bitter fruit. Peter says, you know, the gift of God cannot be purchased with money. Gifts are not purchased for oneself. You have no part with us. That can hardly be said of a Christian, it seems. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent of this, your wickedness. Pray to be forgiven. You're poisoned by bitterness and you are bound by iniquity. None of that sounds good. Now, Christians do, can, and do sin. Okay, But I would suggest that the language used here is a little stronger than the language you might use with a Christian brother or sister who has sinned and fallen to temptation and needs to be restored Um, I I would, in fact, if you were to say this to a person who's made a good profession of faith and has tripped up, has messed up, if you said these kinds of things to them, I would call you out for it. It's not appropriate. But Peter, in his apostolic office, worked in by the Spirit of God as he was, said these things. These things are written down in Scripture. They're God-breathed now through Luke. They seem to be accurate portrayals of the situation much more harsh than what you would say to a believer who has fallen into sin. Remember in Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of, you know, the spirit of Peter here. (laughs) Not that Peter's spirit was bad. I'm just saying in the spirit of gentleness and meekness. Peter was being straightforward because he saw a danger in the church uh, coming. This guy coming and thinking that he's going to buy the work of God. He's going to mess up the, the church from the very beginning there in Samaria And then notice when he says to pray God and repent of this, your wickedness. Maybe you'll be forgiven. And Simon turns around and asks Peter to pray for him. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to pray. I'm desperately wicked. I need to change. He doesn't fall down like Peter did before Jesus and say, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He says, you pray for me. You pray for me so that these things don't come upon me. I want to avoid that, those bad outcomes. He wasn't repenting, it seems. He wasn't praying that God would forgive him. He doesn't seem to have that personal connection to God whereby he could pray for himself as Peter had directed him. So was he saved or not? Well, he bore some very bitter fruit, and you have words like perish, neither part nor portion, heart not right, repent, may be forgiven, poisoned by bitterness, bound by iniquity. A true Christian is not bound by sin. You know that, yes? A true Christian is freed from sin, acquitted from sin, not under the bondage of sin. So I take it that he's, he was not truly saved. It's not that he was saved and then lost it immediately, and that's not the case. He never was truly born again. So somebody can be unsaved even if they have some history that suggests a connection to the faith. On the other hand, someone can be saved who seems to have a lot, a lot of evidence against him. I mean, in the, in the year after David committed his sin and killed Uriah, had Uriah killed, basically killed him, what would you have thought of David? He's a real louse, you know? I mean, he's a loser. He's not a Christian. But we see the evidence borne out over the course of time that he repented and Ask God to cleanse him and restore to him the joy of his salvation in Psalm 51. 
So we have to be discerning on both in both cases. But with Peter's apostolic insight, making such pronouncements here, it's hard for me to see Simon as a, as a saved man. So in general, as we think about that question, was Simon the sorcerer saved? I then turn to the question more generally, well, what about person X, whoever X is? How to determine if someone is truly saved or not? Here's my advice. First and foremost, and I have the most here in my notes on this. I think these are on the website, by the way, if you want to look at them. Um, first of all, it's not of first importance that we know for sure about any individual, particular individual, whether that person is saved or not. It's not of first importance that we know that or that we judge that. God knows those who belong to him and those who do not. It's more important that we be faithful in living for the Lord and sharing godly principles with that person, with all who are around us. Thinking of ourselves as a discerner of everyone else, you know, I've, I, I can figure out if everybody's saved or not, that kind of puts us in danger of making ourselves out to be judges of others. That attitude is not in accord with proper Christian humility. Yet it seems required that we have some rough estimate of whether someone is in the faith for the purposes of trying to ascertain what level of fellowship we should share with that person. You know, I can't, I can't tell sometimes. I don't know. I don't know a person very well. I visited with somebody in another hospital uh, yesterday, never met them before. I asked them if they believe in Christ, if they're a follower of Jesus, if they believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. They affirmed they believed all of that. Praise the Lord, because they're going into hospice soon. But I just go based on what they profess. God knows their heart. I'm glad that they didn't say, no, I don't believe that. You know, that, then I kind of know for sure where they stand, right? But if they say, look, I believe in Christ. I, I, I am a follower of his. Look, you don't have to tell me. I'm not going to be surprised that they haven't lived a perfect life. Ha ha, neither have we. You know, uh, we're, we're not, you know, going to find, uh, you know, angels uh, in the bed, hospice patients and all. Um, we're all sinners. So it's not of first importance that we know for sure about any particular individual, whether that person is saved. But we can have, a, you know, a, an idea. Uh, sometimes with a short interaction with people, you can sense sometimes that they share the same values, the same spirit, that you do, or are they just on totally opposite wavelength that you are? And you know, I think you know what I mean by that. But to be more objective about it, if someone embraces the Word of God, that's a good sign. A very bad sign if they reject God's Word. If someone overcomes sin in their life and tries to do the right thing, that's a good sign too. But if someone makes excuses for sin, oh, that's just who I am, or, you know, well, whatever, the devil made me do it. It's a bad sign. People don't take responsibility. If someone who professes to believe in Jesus, that's good. But if there's no fruit, that's bad. Uh, if they later change their tune and say they do not believe, you've heard of people that they say they believed one time and later on they say they don't believe now. I would advise you to take very seriously their later profession of non-faith because a true believer won't come to the point finally, ultimately, where they say, I reject Jesus. 
because they will know the value of him. They might struggle, they might have all kinds of problems, they might be in total despair, but they won't come to finally reject Jesus truly in their heart. But if somebody says they don't believe, you should take that seriously. If someone likes to gather with other Christians, they like to pray, they like to hear the word of God, that's a very good sign. That's, what a, that's naturally what a Christian person does. If someone wants to share their faith, another very good sign. If someone holds to correct doctrine, generally, that's a very good sign. You know, say they understand that God who saves, that we're sinners, that God offers salvation through Christ alone, through faith, and he's the only way, and, you know, so far things look very good. But Simon the sorcerer doesn't seem to fit these descriptions, does he? No, you pray for me. I don't want those consequences, but I'd like to buy the Holy Spirit. You know, how much the charge? What's the is he on sale today or, or what? Um, you know, just because someone receives outward rituals or says words doesn't make that person a saved person. So, again, now it's best to focus on our own situation, though, as we look at this. We don't want to be, you know going out there trying to inspect everybody else's fruit. But we can look at passages like 1 John and James and ask ourselves questions like the following. Let me just give these rapid fire toward you uh, as you think about your own profession of faith. Has your attitude towards sin changed from before? Do you keep God's commands? These are all from 1 John, the tests of eternal life. Do we love God first and do we love others as we love ourselves or do we love the world do we believe in the doctrine of christ do we practice righteousness do we love our brother do we have the spirit of god in us do we agree that christ came in the flesh do we believe the gospel testimony about jesus that he is the christ the son of god who came in the flesh who is incarnate those are uh, nine of the tests that are given in the book of 1 John. James has bunches of evidence of what a Christian looks like. Christian counts trials as a joy of, because of what they produce, right? What do, what do trials produce? Patience, perseverance, character. A Christian asks God for wisdom. He recognizes the fleeting nature of life. You know, you're like a flower that, Goes, grows up and then sun beats on it, the wind passes over it and it perishes, dries up and dies. A Christian endures temptation, does not blame God for sin. You know, it doesn't say that God tempted me because God cannot tempt anyone. He, the, the Christian is a doer of the word, not a hearer only. A, a believer controls his tongue helps those in trouble, eschews favoritism or partiality, loves his neighbor as himself, adds faith to his faith, he adds what? Good works, right? Faith without works is dead faith. Uh, the Christian opposes demonic wisdom and selfish ambition. He draws near to God and he resists the devil. If you're a believer, you... Avoid judging your brother or speaking evil of your brother. If you notice yourself doing that or beginning to do that, you should catch yourself up short. 
the Christian does not boast about tomorrow. We don't know. You know, I think I know what I'm doing tomorrow. I've got a couple major items on the to-do list, but who knows what happens tonight or tomorrow or what thing I have to go do that God has ordained otherwise, some hospital visit or something, whatever, who knows, um, if the Lord wills. We do not trust in riches. Christians are patient and wait for the Lord's return. We don't hurry it along too quickly. We want to hasten it in the sense of bringing more people to faith, you know. So we hasten the coming of the day of God. But in, the, in another sense, we don't, we don't hurry it along. We're not impatient. We're like the farmer who waits for the rains and, uh, to cause the seeds to germinate and bring forth the precious fruit of the earth. Christians pray earnestly. And finally, in the book of James, right at the end, there's that little note about how believers try to win sinners from the error of their way. For doing so saves a soul from death, covers a multitude of sins. So that's what a Christian looks like. Simon the sorcerer doesn't look like that to me. So we're, we're going to keep him in the uh, outside column, so to speak. And uh, church history doesn't have much good, as I understand, uh, to say about him, but... Uh, We'll leave that uh, for church history or tradition. Well, threats to the church, as I close this section of Acts chapter 8, include persecution as well as false belief and syncretism. So let me say those in longer form. First of all, persecution is what happened in the beginning of Acts 8. Saul was persecuting the church. People scattered. Uh, It was a big-time problem. But then there's also false belief and syncretism, false belief evidenced by Simon the sorcerer, and also syncretism. What is syncretism? That is bringing uh, the elements of your pagan faith along with elements of Christianity and putting them together. The world is full of syncretistic religions um, in certain places where Catholicism is added to local cultural religions and faith practices, uh, and uh, same with Islam. Uh, we, we can't be involved in that. Sinful elements of culture, paganism, all have to fall away. It's Christ, all Christ, or none of Christ. Um, so you have those threats, syncretism, false belief, persecution. These can expose weaknesses in the church regarding discernment. You know, supposing we don't, can't discern false belief or an uncommitted stance toward Christ uh, in the church. Um, you know, we desire to pay close attention to, the, to our lives to see that we have the kinds of characteristics that I've outlined here. Um, and then I wanted to mention two strengths here of the church are the, the great joy of salvation. In verse 8 of chapter 8, when Philip came, there was great joy in that city. You know, think of the unhappiness in the world, the hatred the depression, the discouragement. If you know Christ, you can have great joy. You don't have to be glum because you have a great hope. Yeah, of course, you know, not, not every moment is uh, you know, on cloud nine. Obviously, we know that. But in the, at base, you can say, I have a confident joy in the Lord Great joy and salvation. And then also the unity of believers. Uh, Peter and John and Philip come down from Jerusalem to Samaria. You know where Samaria is today? 
the West Bank. So the West Bank, the big section there, kind of north and west of Jerusalem, that is Judea and Samaria, roughly speaking. Okay, those there, and that's where Jesus had to go through Samaria in John chapter 4 to meet the woman at the well and preach the gospel. Many people believed in him, not because of her testimony, but because he himself preached there to them. Um, but, you know, Samaritans don't have any dealings with Jews and Jews with Samaritans. So what happens here? Peter and John and Philip, Jews par excellence, come down and preach the gospel, and they all share the same spirit. They share the same gospel, the same Christ, the same church, everything. So there's the unity of all believers regardless of their ethnic or we could say racial background. I think I prefer ethnic background. But, um, you know, for us today, there are millions and even billions of opportunities for us to share that joy and that unity with people around the world. Of all ethnic backgrounds, of all ethnicities, whether it's North America, South America, whether it's, you know, uh, Oceania, as they call it, whether it's Russia and China and the Middle East and Africa and South Africa and North Africa, great uh, millions and millions of opportunities for the gospel to expand beyond our current borders and reach people who are lost so that they can have a great joy just like the people in Samaria did. And uh, yeah, we'll have to deal with Phil, uh, with uh, Simon the Sorcerer types all the time, but we've been given a little outline here as to how to handle that. So, All right, well, thank you very much for t- tonight coming and uh, listening to the word. Let's pray as we close. Lord, it's a blessing that we could be here and uh, think about the things of God, about the kingdom, about Christ, about errors of discernment, about false doctrines, about syncretism, about persecution. Lord, help us to be faithful in our day. Whatever comes, help, our, help us in our society to stand up for what is right and uh, to maintain uh, our freedoms Uh, diligently so that we may use them to glorify Christ, not to be just comfortable ourselves, but to advance the work of Jesus throughout the world. Thank you in his name. Amen.